Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. He's not speaking about gaining or even holding on to your salvation through good works. But beloved, you've got to understand that John writes here in agreements with James, in agreement with Paul, and even in agreement with Jesus as he confirms the fact that someone who is born again by the Spirit of God does not continue to live a life outside of the will and the plan of God. If we're truly born again, if we're truly His, then there has to be changes within our lives that draw us more toward obedience than continually walking away from it. Have you declared that you believe in Jesus but perhaps still live a life far from trust and obedience to Him? Has your life been changed at all since you first believed? The Apostle John writes to encourage his church to live lives that are consistent with what they believe. Pastor David will challenge you today to check for evidence in your life that proves you're still walking within the will of God. There must be changes in your life. The goal isn't perfect behavior, but the desire to obey and repent when convicted. Now here's Pastor David as he continues his message, Intro to the John Epistles. secular worldview is so totally different than what a biblical worldview is that you would probably be shocked. We as a country, beloved, we are nowhere near a biblical worldview. Nowhere near. And we're going further and further away from it. Having the right doctrine is an absolute necessity as an ingredient within your salvation. John gives us some doctrinal tests. Second thing he gives us is uh, what I call social tests. Social tests. It makes a difference, guess what, on how we treat each other. God looks at how we treat each other, and it makes a difference on how we treat each other. If the love of God truly abides within us, we will treat people the way that God treats people. Yeah, but he's one of those. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all unrighteousness. His heart, his love is for all men everywhere, desiring that they would come to repentance and to salvation. What lines does God draw? He's got too many tats. He, He speaks a broken English. Oh, he's the wrong color. He's the right color. Oh, he's... He doesn't have enough money. He's got too much money. We even, yeah, as the church, we throw these barriers in there. And beloved John says, you better not. Not if you call yourself a believer. Not if you call yourself a child of God. All of that has to be done away with. John speaks greatly about the love for the brethren. 
But I believe as we look at this, we'll see that this test even goes on to how we treat those that are still in the world, that are outside of faith. You think that that love of God is only within the four walls of the church? No, it reached out of the walls of the church when it reached you. And he's still reaching outside the walls, and he wants to touch people's lives. And if we come in with attitudes and prejudices and those preconceived notions, well, that guy with all those tats and all that metal on his face, surely he can't come to Christ. Yeah, he can, and he might be more on fire for Christ than you ever were. It matters how you treat others. John gives us social tests. He also gives us moral tests tests. John brings out the clear truth that how you and I live our lives in this present world at this time just might be the telling reality of where we're going to spend the next world in, how we live for all eternity. Now, he's not speaking about gaining or even holding on to salvation through good works. But beloved, you got to understand that John writes here in agreements with James, in agreement with Paul, and even in agreement with Jesus as he confirms the fact that someone who is born again by the Spirit of God does not continue to live a life outside of the will and the plan of God. If we're truly born again, if we're truly his, then there has to be changes within our lives that draw us more toward obedience than continually walking away from it. We're not saved by how we live, but how we live will verify if we are truly saved. That's the moral tests. And remember, whenever you take a test, the test isn't the channel where you gain the knowledge. The test simply is there to determine whether or not you have that knowledge or not. When we look at this, don't say, okay, that's good, man. I I need to take that. No, I think that when we go through this and we look at this, we suddenly need to realize, man, I need to repent. If If I call myself a child of God, I need to repent in my life because I'm not living the way that brings honor and glory to God in that area of my life or in this area of my life or in that area. And again, guys, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I am talking about, again, the direction and the purpose, the point, the vision of your life. That's why, again, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. If you are running a race, if you keep looking around you and keep looking around you and keep looking behind you, you'll never make it as a winner to the finish line. When you're running the race, keeping your eyes on the finish line is what it's all about. And I believe that's what John, as an older man, as a guy who had the apostolic authority over churches at that time, a guy who had pastored churches, a guy that had been through so much in his life. I believe he's writing these things not from a high tower that says, look, you, guys, you people need to do this. I believe that he's down on the ground literally pleading with the church that says, look, if you're part of the body of Christ, this is what ought to be happening within your life. This is what the impact of the Spirit of God ought to have in your life if you truly call yourself saved. 
John writes to the church. Here in 1 John, he wants the church to know, to know that they know that they are truly saved. That you may know, either, that you may know for certain that you have eternal life. Before we get into the verse by verse, I also want to do just a real quick look at John. Because again, looking at the guy who wrote it and the impact of his own Christian life, I think really tells a lot for us. I want to take a few more minutes just to get into this uh, one of at least two sons of Zebedee, the fisherman. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be around in the Gospels for a little bit. Mark 1, I'm sorry. Mark chapter 1. Verse 16, Mark writes about Jesus calling his first disciples. In Mark 1, 16, Mark writes, And as he, Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, and that's Simon Peter, Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a, a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending nets. And immediately he, Jesus, called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. I love this immediately, this immediate response. Going through Acts, we see people immediately responding, immediately responding, not waiting, not considering, Lord, you're calling me, boom, I want to be there. We see even as Mark lists them here, James, the son of Zebedee, oh yeah, and also his brother. Uh, John, we know, is a younger brother. But together, James and John came to be known as sons of thunder. That's not a positive name, okay? That was not really a good thing for them, particularly when you look at their life. And I actually find a lot of humorous incidents that go on with James and John. Turn over to the book of uh, Luke. Go on to your right, chapter 9. Here in chapter 9, we find John actually uh, coming against others that were in ministry, but they weren't doing it the way that he thought it ought to be done. Uh, Luke chapter 9, look down in verse 49. Luke 9, 49. Now, John, that's our boy John, answered and said, speaking to Jesus, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we forbade them because he doesn't follow with us. He goes to a different church. They baptize different than we do. They worship different than we do. They're different than us. And so I knew that it was wrong. That's in essence what he's saying. I forbade them because they weren't following us. They were casting out demons, but what they were doing was wrong. I love what Jesus says. Jesus says, don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. There's a lot of different directions you could go with that. 
But I just love, again, that son of thunder, that zeal. Lord, we saw somebody doing something that, that, that wasn't part of us. And so we're, we're going to stop them. We're not going to let that happen. We'll protect the dignity of your ministry. Really. If God doesn't protect it, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. Okay. Still in, in Luke 9, it's like the very next verse. They go to a Samaritan village, verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But that village, they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and our boy John, saw this, they said, Lord, you want us to call hell fire down on him? Elijah did it, Lord, we can do it. Got to love this guy's heart, right? And Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you don't even know what manner of spirit you are of. How did Jesus deal with this? Well, verse 56, the son of man didn't come to destroy men's life, but to save them. And they just went to another village. That's how easy that is. James and John might have been students of the word of God. They knew what Elijah did. Hey, can we do what Elijah did? They might have been students of the word of God, but they weren't students of the heart of God. And you see the danger in that church? We can know so much, but if we don't know him in his fullness, then we're going to abuse what we do know. We find again, James and John, they try to sneak in, they try to get this special position in the kingdom of heaven. Go back to Mark, sorry, we probably should have covered that one first. Mark 10, I mean, I really do love these guys because I see them so much today. Uh Chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Doesn't that sound like a kid? You know, Mom, would you do me a favor? Well, that really depends. We want you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Now, I actually did that wrong. They came to Jesus and they said, Master, would you do for us whatever we ask? And Jesus said, what? What do you want me to do? Keep it down, keep it down. We want to sit on either side of you once you get into your kingdom. We know they did that because we find out later in that same passage, later on the disciples find about that, and they are really ticked at James and John. Why? Because they presumed upon Jesus? No, because they beat him to the punch. Don't think that those guys didn't want the same position. They just beat him to the punch. Sitting on the right and left hand of Jesus, and Jesus said, man, you have no idea what you're asking. You're not even able to drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of. And it's interesting that James, the older brother of the two, he's the first one of the apostles that gets beheaded. Yeah, they drank a powerful cup. John, through all the things that went through in his life, 
Yeah, he was the longest living apostle that we know of. What a hard, hard row he had to hoe to work through all that God was working in his life. I think that that's really when we look at this, when we look very early on in the gospel accounts, that we find Simon Peter, and you know we can go through all of his issues. We have Simon Peter and James and John, the two brothers, they appear to be like this inner circle with Jesus. They seem to be separated from all the others by the choice of Jesus and on more than just a couple of occasions. But literally, I think it's because Jesus wanted to keep eyes on these guys. I wouldn't let these guys loose. When Jesus went to the ruler of the synagogue, remember his daughter had died. They went up to the room where the daughter was. Jesus permitted no one else to follow him except Peter, James, and John. I don't know what kind of trouble you guys are going to get if I leave you out there. Come on in with me. If you remember, it was on the the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the two sons of Zebedee, took him with him as he went deeper into the garden. All the rest of the disciples, you guys stay there. Again, Judas is already gone. The rest of you guys stay there. Peter, James, John, you guys stick with me, okay? And they went in. Then he said, okay, now you guys stay here and pray. And what happened? They fell asleep. They fell asleep. We also read about the Mount of Transfiguration, an awesome opportunity. What a spiritual powerhouse that would have been. And who went up with Jesus? Peter, James, and John. And, oh yeah, they went to sleep again. Ministry is tiring. I understand that. But there's sometimes you just got to stay awake if you want to see God really move. And I believe this particular event on the Mount of Transfiguration, as they went up there, probably more than any others, actually comes into play in those opening words of John's gospel account. In John 1, 14, John himself is the one who wrote, and the word of God became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Not just that we walked with him. No, we had a chance to behold his glory. And I think... Probably by this time later on in life, as John's writing his gospel account, he's kicking himself because he didn't get to see the whole thing. Oh, but we saw him in his glory. It was on the Mount of Transfiguration where, again, Jesus appeared to them in that glorified form. And John is believed, yeah, he was the youngest of the disciples. That, yeah, this is another interesting thing about John. John was the one who, on the, the Last Supper, the evening when they were all together, having that last meal together, it's John, the word says, that uh, he was resting his head uh, on Jesus. In fact, it's in the Gospel of John, the, the one that he wrote, that says, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. You got to understand that phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is only used in John's gospel. He's the only one that writes that. He never gives his own name, but he always refers to himself in his own gospel as that disciple whom Jesus loved. And he did it like five or six times within that gospel. Oh, you know, 
disciple that Jesus loved, you know. Oh, I love it. In the early pages of the book of Acts, that's when we find James' brother beheaded. But we also find that as John aged, as he grew on in years and experience, God did use him in a powerful way. Not only did he write the gospel account of John, but he also wrote those three letters, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. So Adam Clark tells us, a Bible commentator, he says the early church father Tertullian, who Tertullian was uh, not only an early church father, he was a prolific writer. He wrote a lot, and we get a lot from him of early church history. Tertullian, as well as others, say that Domitian, the Roman emperor that reigned from 81 to 96, Domitian actually waged war against the church, and in the 15th year of his reign in 95 AD, Domitian actually had John banished from Ephesus. No, this isn't the time he went to Patmos. No, he took him from Ephesus and he brought him to Rome, and again, Tertullian, early church father writing this, that in Rome they took John and they immersed him in a cauldron of boiling oil, out of which, Tertullian writes, he escaped unhurt, and that afterwards then he was banished to the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. With Domitian then having been slain the very next year in AD 96, his successor, Nerva, recalled all of the exiles who had been banished by his predecessor. And John is supposed to have then returned the next year to Ephesus, being then about 90 years old. He is thought to have been the only apostle who died a natural death and to have lived upwards to 100 years old. Some say that having completed his 100th birthday, he died the day following. What we have before us, guys, is a study in the writings of someone who has experienced the Lord Jesus in such a powerful, such an intimate way, close up and personal. One who knows what it means to to suffer for truth, to suffer for his faith. Someone who gave up comfort, gave up freedom. Someone who lost his loved ones for the cause of the gospel. Someone who saw apostle after apostle lose their lives again against the enemies of the church, saw the church under such great persecution, again, as men, women, and children lost their lives or lost their freedom for the gospel. What we have before us in the study is really the heart of a pastor, caring for the sheep that God had placed under his care. And I believe also as well as for all of those that'll follow along in that journey to that great celestial city, the place where God dwells. I don't know about you, but I'm challenged by this study and I'm excited to get into it.
are so glad we could be with you today as we opened God's Word and dove deeply into its goodness and truth. If you missed any part of today's message in John's epistles, we encourage you to catch up on our website, theopenword.com. There you'll be able to browse our library of audio as well as learn more about the ministry of The Open Word. We'd love to hear from you too and find out how God's working in your life. Please give us a call at 520-836-9676. When you call, be sure to let us know how we can be praying for you. That number again is 520-836-9676. Is social media part of your routine? Come like our Facebook page and keep up to date with all that's happening at The Open Word and Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. You'll find a link at our website, theopenword.com. As our time comes to a close today, Pastor David has a quick word of encouragement to share with you. Oh yeah, thanks Chris. Any time you spend in God's Word is valuable, and I'd like to encourage you to do it as often as possible. By diving deeper into Scripture and letting it saturate your heart and mind, you'll be ready to take on your day as well as be prepared when the enemy attacks. If you're not sure where to start, you can begin by reading today's passage again, or simply begin with the Gospel of Mark, a short and simple reading. If your heart is open to the Holy Spirit's direction, you can't go wrong. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, and I hope you'll join me again next time on The Open Word.